No one, no country, no government, no economy and no business will be immune to the effects of climate change. We've lost the policy impetus to take meaningful action on climate change. At the moment, Australia is being marked down in global capital markets because our targets are seen as weak, our policy is seen as weak, and our economy is seen as carbon intensive. We're sort of at an end game, I think, now, in the denial and delay sort of paradigm that it, it, all you can do now is ask to prop up the polluting. For what reason? Despite the needs of the economy, despite the best interests of consumers, and despite what we need to do for the planet. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Hello and welcome. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you all on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and to acknowledge the ancestral lands that we are all joining from. And I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Thank you all for joining us today for the From Denial to Delay, Moving Beyond Australia's Fossil Fuel Addiction panel discussion hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute. The Sydney Environment Institute is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. It brings together the key thinkers from the university and beyond to address critical environmental challenges. My name is Susan Park. I'm a professor of global governance, the acting deputy director of the Sydney Environment Institute and research lead on the Unsettling Resources Project. This event is part of the Unsettling Resources Extraction Series that probes the use, impact, and the future of gas, coal, and lead extraction in Australia at a critical point in our changing climate. This is the second of our extraction series. You can catch up with last week's Protecting Country or Extraction on Glencore's MacArthur River Mine in the Northern Territory Um, on our YouTube channel that um, Genevieve will put in the chat. I'd like to pass over to the chair of today's event, Dr Tanya Feidler, who is a lecturer in accounting. Tanya's research is deeply interdisciplinary. Her research is concerned with the ways in which engineering, actuarial science and climate science integrate into work practices, business strategy and accounting. Prior to her academic career, Tanya worked as a consultant for energetics specialist carbon and energy consultancy. Over to you, Tanya. Great. Many thanks, Susan, and uh, for the introduction and to the SEI as well for the opportunity to chair the panel this evening. So we have a great uh, lineup of speakers here with us today, um, and I'll introduce each of these briefly in turn. So we have Tom Arup, who is a policy and advocacy specialist. He is currently responsible for overseeing programs, advocacy and strategy at the Investor Group on Climate Change and the Asia Investor Group on Climate Change, delivering on key projects across Asia, Australia and New Zealand. Then we have Dan Cass, who is an energy transition strategist. Uh, So Dan is a research affiliate at the Sydney Environment Institute. and is also Energy Policy and Regulatory Lead at the Australia Institute and Senior Advisor to the Clean Energy Investor Group. And then last but definitely not least, we have Chris Wright, who is a Professor of Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School, where he teaches and researches business responses to climate change, sustainability and critical understandings of capitalism. 
He has published extensively on the political economy of climate change, organisational sustainability, corporate political activity and the evolution of climate fictions. Before we proceed, however, I'd like us to reflect a little on the status quo. Let us be clear, climate change is an existential risk. And because of this, it is a risk to countries like Australia, to our economy and to those who govern us. It is also a risk to our business, be they coal miners or solar cell producers. No one, no country, no government, no economy and no business will be immune to the effects of climate change. The climate does not, as one former PM argued, sit within the economy. Rather, the economy sits within and is vulnerable to the climate. Now, internationally, it is clear that the EU and now also the US are in agreement that emissions reductions need to accelerate. So investors of all stripes are demanding reductions of investee companies and are calling out for climate sensitive investment opportunities. Credit rating agencies are signalling downgrades for countries such as Australia that are facing a double whammy of both exposure to the acute impacts of climate change as well as to the economy reliant on fossil fuels. Central bank governors and financial regulators globally are increasingly demanding of regulated entities such as banks, insurers and superannuation funds, as well as of publicly listed companies, that they assess their exposure to climate-related risk. Even the accountants such as myself are getting in on it, and global standard setters have published guidance on financial materiality in the context of climate change. So where does this leave Australia? Only yesterday, at the Australian Financial Review Energy and Climates Summit, Federal Energy Minister Angus Taylor expressed concerns over the cost to electricity and gas customers of additional emissions reductions. Similarly, and while acknowledging the financial risks to Australian companies and to the economy as a whole arising from the flight of capital towards zero carbon future, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, in a speech delivered recently to the Australian Industry Group, insisted that Australian banks, insurers and superannuation funds should not walk away from the very sectors of our economy that will need investment to successfully transition. Finally, we also have a leader in Scott Morrison who is not yet committed to going to COP26 as other international leaders have. The above all suggest a tension between domestic politics and global reality. There is a clear and deliberate misrepresentation in the discourse conducted within Australian politics between the costs of emission reductions to consumers on the one hand and the cost to us all from climate change on the other hand. Now, to tell us more about these tensions and the discourse conducted here in Australia, when juxtaposed with events currently taking place internationally, I'd like to turn to our first speaker, Tom. Uh, so Tom, as Director of Strategic Projects uh, for the Australian and Asian Investor Groups on Climate Change, you have plenty of interaction with uh, investors, uh, with the investor community and with uh, global financial markets more generally. Could you uh, maybe detail for us some of uh, your observations around how global capital markets are now shifting in response to climate change? And uh, 
consider what this means for Australia. So what are the risks for our corporates? Uh, what is the risk to Australia more broadly? Thanks very much for um, setting that up. So I think the first thing I'd say is that um, while I'm probably not one to give a lot of credit to rhetorical shifts um, from political actors, I don't think we should underplay um, the importance of the speech from the Treasurer the other week. Um, and that's in particular because... Um, and not only is he reflecting um, the cost of inaction that comes from not acting on climate change in terms of the physical risks that will emerge or are emerging, you know, better known as worse bushfires, you know, more intense floods, longer heat waves, more frequent heat waves, but also the risk to Australia's national competitiveness in global capital markets. Um, and therefore, he's articulating what we've, a number of us who have been working around capital markets for a while know um, that the cost of inaction um, exists um, uh, as a competitive issue as well. So, um, and I think the reason we've got to this point in the Australian discussion is really it's just a reflection of what we've seen emerging global capital markets since the Paris Agreement was formed. Um, the Paris Agreement was, um, you know, about as strong a market signal as you can get, uh, that the world was bumpy, uneven, but was starting to move in a direction on decarbonisation. And from an investor perspective, you don't have the luxury of ignoring that, that immediately raises a range of questions for the ass about the assets in your portfolio. Um, and therefore, we saw since Paris, it's been going along, it's been going on for quite a long time, but a sort of acceleration since Paris amongst institutional investors, a growing understanding of what climate risk meant for their portfolios, both the physical risks, so a better understanding of what uh, the impacts of climate change are going to mean in terms of their ability to generate returns for their beneficiaries. So, in the case of Australia, a super fund's ability to generate returns for an average Australian in terms of their retirement savings, um, and also an understanding of the risks that the decarbonisation process would have in terms of stranding assets, and in particular, carbon-intensive assets like fossil fuel-based companies uh, and um, you know, infrastructure and the like. At the same time as working through that process and, and getting much more sophisticated in understanding that risk, they also started to better understand the opportunities as well. And they, that has been another feature of the Australian debate that I think we should really welcome over the last 18 months is an increased emphasis on the investment opportunities that decarbonisation is going to drive. Um, and ultimately, if you're an investor, what you're trying to do and what you're actually required to do is generate returns uh, for the beneficiaries you have. And so you're looking for what's called alpha, or that's basically to beat the market, make money. Um, and uh, the decarbonisation process and the net zero emissions tran uh, transition is increasingly being seen as a huge alpha generation opportunity. Um, finally, and it was nowhere near as sexy as the Paris Agreement, but at the same time, um, a little sort of program called the TCFD or the Task Force for Climate Related Disclosures was also launched. 
Um, and it is a framework that allows companies, financial institutions, uh, government entities to make disclosures like they would make in any financial market. Um, so normally a financial organisation will make a disclosure about their profit, their income, um, but this particular framework helps them make um, disclosures related to their exposure to this climate risk and how they're seeking to address it. Um, and while that, that can seem technical and boring, it actually drove through the investor community um, and mainstreamed climate change um, as a consideration uh, in the core of their business. Um, it's not perfect. Um, there's gaps in the system. We're starting to work through that. Um, you know, and some countries are responding to that through ma developing mandatory disclosure regimes. But it did set off um, a kind of understanding through financial s systems. So what does that mean for Australia? So you've got this activity. Investors are now responding to these risks and opportunities. We've seen huge numbers of investors uh uh, signing up to engage with the companies in their equities portfolios on climate change. So uh, on last count, there's a global initiative that we're involved in called Climate Action 100 Plus. So there's 615 investors globally with about half, a, with 55 trillion in assets who have signed up to engage with the 160 biggest emitting companies in the world um, on climate change and to try to bring them towards what looks like a Paris-aligned business model over a number of years. We're also seeing investors starting to make their own commitments towards net zero. Um, so, for instance, the net, net zero asset managers initiative uh, now has about 120 signatories, 128 signatories with about 43 trillion in investment uh, with assets under management. So that's about a third to a half of all the assets globally around the world. So these guys are sending a very big signal to the market that they want a shift on climate change. They want decarbonisation to occur um, because they want to reduce the climate risk in their portfolios and maximise the opportunities they have access to. So for a country like Australia, that immediately becomes a competitive issue, competitiveness issue, because capital markets through this activity, through this understanding, are shifting very quickly to price climate change into their investment decisions and look for the best opportunities in the decarbonisation transition. So as, as the Treasurer said, this is about Australia's competitiveness in those markets and our access to that capital, which we rely on to, um, you know, pay for all kinds of things in our country, but also our uh, through, the, through the budget, through the raising of debt, but also our companies rely on global investment um, into companies as well so that they can continue to expand, be successful. Uh, you know, Australia is an export nation and a trading nation, um, and we're currently seeing 70% or more than 70% of our two-way trade is now with countries with net zero goals for 2050. So we are now selling products into a world that is telling us that, we, that they want to decarbonise at what is a pretty relatively quick rate across three decades. Our major allies have all increased their 2030 emissions reductions goals um, either late last year or this year, which is part of a Paris, the Paris Agreement cyclical process to update our targets. And the Australian government and Australian companies are starting to hear directly from investors questions about how they're, they're managing carbon risk. Um, 
And so the best way to respond to those questions is through policy and targets um, and setting up a range of sustainable and finance uh, frameworks that you require. So this is kind of where it's brought us to at the moment because at the moment Australia is being marked down in global capital markets because our targets are seen as weak, our policy is seen as weak and our economy is seen as carbon intensive, um, including our export products. And so therefore, um, to remain competitive in those markets and in these, these shifting, quite rapid shifts of global capital, we are going to need to show these capital markets that we're serious about decarbonisation. Thanks so much, Tom. So we've just been hearing about these opportunities for alpha, the mainstreaming of climate change, um, but also about these competitive issues, competitiveness issues that are emerging for Australia um, when thinking about our trading partners, our allies and so on. Um, so I'm just wondering, Dan, um, in your role as energy policy and regulatory lead at the Australia Institute, um, you have insight into some of the barriers and challenges that exist here in Australia uh, for green technologies um, or for investors to be able to invest in climate sensitive investment opportunities. So, and what, I, what I'd like to understand is um, what, in what ways do our current regulatory structures and planning laws prevent Australian companies from minimising their exposure from this capital flight um, that we've been hearing about? Or, as Tom was um, talking to, um, in what ways do our laws and regulations prevent Australian companies from embracing the alpha opportunities um, that global capital markets present in this environment? Great. Look, th thanks, Sanya. Look, they're, they're really excellent questions. And... Uh, look, I will get to them, but I think the, the issue with electricity regulation is it is interminably complex. So I thought perhaps I'll just start with a bit of a scene setter. And I think where we're at, um, you know, now he heading into this, this next COP, I can't keep track of which COP we're up to. They, they, they come and go. Following climate politics is like being stuck in long political COVID for your whole life. Uh, but the big political opportunity and market opportunity and opportunity for life on Earth is over the time that the COPs have been failing for decades, renewables got cheap. Renewables and batteries and everything else related to clean energy generation, supply and trade and so on. And that I think is really where the battle is and where the big opportunity is. And that's the focus of my work um, at the Institute and elsewhere. So I thought it, it's useful just to step back a little bit and look at, um, I guess the rubric of this event, you know, denial and delay and put it in that context. In the 1990s, denial really was mostly a legitimate kind of scepticism about the climate science itself. You know, I studied planetary climatology and I worked for the first uh, global warming campaign organisation, Greenhouse Action Australia, in 1991 and 92. And I think then it was a, a genuine scepticism in some quarters and across the political spectrum and business. What is this climate science? How do we know the impacts will come? Will they all be bad? Will the CO2 make plants grow? Will it be good for cold areas to be able to grow warm agriculture um, zone products and so on? I think what's happened in, in the 2000s and, and more recently is this sort of switch from denial and scepticism around the problem and climate science to the solution. And these things of course go hand in hand, you know, trying to deny 
there's a problem and then there's no point trying to fix it anyway or Australia will come to harm and so on. There's sort of multiple rhetorical strategies that go together. But I think that the, 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 the focus really of denial and delay has switched to the solutions increasingly and to um, criticisms of wind and solar as being too expensive or too unreliable or not able to provide um, security for the grid, frequency control and voltage control, inertia and system strength. And, and I think these are really fascinating questions to work in, um, partly because they're, they're almost the last refuge. I mean, once you've complained about the science and complained about the cost, if you're finally complaining about you don't want more of cheap energy and you're having to, as a government or as a backbencher in a government, argue to subsidise coal, you've really, you've kind of passed through the singularity of absurdity. You're saying, well, now it's not just about not taking action to save the world because it might cost something, but you're actually saying, let's spend $250 billion so we can keep polluting. And as Tom has explained, jeopardise our access to capital markets and everything that goes with that in terms of incoming investment and uh, credit risk for onshore companies and so on and so forth. So, you know, I agree with Tom that the Treasurer's speech, I think, was significant because it's raising that prospect that we're sort of at an end game, I think, now uh, in the denial and delay sort of paradigm that it, it all you can do now is ask to prop up the polluting. For what reason? Despite the needs of the economy, despite the best interests of consumers and despite what we need to do for the planet. So, and I'm mindful of time and I think it's good to sort of keep the flow. So I'll, I'll be quick, but just to, to sort of wrap that up, I think the two great apostles of denial and delay in Australia were Prime Ministers John Howard and Tony Abbott. And they really gave a great, I think, case study of this denial of the solution and, and denial of renewables. John Howard spoke often from about 2007 or thereabouts about the need for baseload and the fact that renewables could never do this and therefore you needed coal until nuclear was ready. And there's a signal there for us, until nuclear is ready. And Tony Abbott, and I have to read the quote, it's, it's a classic Abbottism, you gotta have backups, and I won't do the accent. You gotta have backups because when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, the power doesn't flow. And to his credit, Perhaps Tony Abbott said what we need is batteries. Once batteries are in, you could solve this problem of the supposed um, you know, uh, challenge of variability of, reno of renewable energy. Uh, and then this is where you know, the narrator would come in and say, and then Australia built the world's biggest battery. And the energy economics is really simple and clear. The price of batteries reduced about 80% since Tony Abbott said that in 2013. And so going back to the 90s when I got involved in climate and the lithium-ion battery came onto the market in about 91, battery prices have come down probably 97 or 98% since then. So I guess that, you know, the question is, what is the purpose and, and, the, and the power? How does denial and delay function when it is so absurd? And I think in the space of renewable energy, it's really about throwing up the distraction that a future technology is needed, we don't yet have it, we must delay until this new thing comes. And we might say that we believe in the solution, but we need to invent the actual technology that will deliver and implement it, which of course I think is, is absurd and renewables are now ready. So look, I, I thought I might wrap up there, 
but just I, I think you know the question of denial and delay specifically around clean energy and its ability to compete in the national electricity market is is terrifically important and that's really where our work is focused in in my program at the institute and essentially what the strategy consists of is trying to use regulatory levers in energy law to open up the national electricity market to competition from clean and so the hypothesis is purely as clean becomes cost effective it should compete on economic grounds and if it's not and developers tell us often there are these huge challenges to getting financial close and managing risk in clean energy if those things are not happening that's a regulatory problem not a technological one so we don't need a technology roadmap we need an energy reform roadmap that allows clean to win which it's ready to do on on economics alone so look i might wrap up there but um yeah denial and delay and uh, and batteries is my thing <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan. Um, so, Chris, um, as an academic, you've published extensively on business responses to climate change. And in particular, you've described concepts such as uh, fossil fuel lock-in and predatory delay. So, so um, Dan was just talking to us about how denial, um, how, you know, he was asking, how does denial and delay function when it's so absurd? Um, could you maybe unpack for us a little bit about the, the history of this, you know, how have we come to this absurd position? Um, what, what's, what, what are the different sort of stages of, of discourse and the types of discourse that we've gone through in Australia um, that has led us to this place that's undermining a transition to a low carbon world? Yeah, sure. Th thanks for that, Tanya. So um, essentially what we've been doing with some of our research more recently has been to focus on the fossil fuel industry more generally and the history to that. And what we've discerned, obviously, there's a range of tactics and strategies involved in the political gamesmanship that the industry plays, that this is a political economic sort of d debate. Um, and beyond the sort of the technological and market rationality of a transition towards sort of low-carbon technologies, there's a political game that's played. And Dan mentioned former Prime Ministers Howard and Abbott as sort of key actors in that process. And it's no doubt that is the case. And I'd probably put Morrison in that camp too now. Um, but the politicians, to an extent, on the, and I'm talking about the conservative side of politics primarily, although we can, we can go to the other side as well, um, are almost the radical flank of this sort of political game that's been played out over the last 20 to 30 years in Australia. Uh, and the other actors critically there are the industry, um, the, the major corporations, mostly the big multinational resource corporations in the coal and gas sectors, um, but also their industry associations, which are the sort of the key intermediaries that play that that political game and, and signal to the public and to the politicians where the, where the sort of the, the, the policy outcome should go. And so in a recent piece of research that um, my colleagues and I have done, we've been looking at the public utterances, I guess, the sort of the, the PR and marketing spiel that the industry associations have come out with over the last 20 years. And, and as your question was alluding, there's a sort of a... Um, a, a historical narrative uh, that is portrayed by the industry and parroted in its more extreme forms by the politicians. And it goes something like this. There's a sort of a, um, there's a, there's an imagined past that's presented, uh, which presents the role of the coal industry in Australia primarily as the sort of the backbone of the economy historically, you know, the opening up of the Hunter Valley and Latrobe Valley, uh, the, the sort of the contributions it's made to the steel industry. We used to have a steel industry in Australia. Uh, 
in um, the Hunter and the Wollongong. Um, it goes right the way back to almost the colonial past, you know, that uh, Matthew Flinders was exploring up the east coast of Australia and mapping these coal seams you could see in the escarpment around Wollongong. Um, so this sort of industry association has promoted this vision historically that the coal industry has been the backbone of the economy. It's contributed fundamentally to the economics. And there's a strong element of truth in this, of course, around, you know, um, the massive expansion of coal, the, the royalties, that um, the taxes that the coal industry might contribute. And, and politicians have echoed these sort of um, these points by saying, well, this is Campbell Newman in Queensland 2012, for instance. We're in the coal business. Um, this is where your police and your nurses and your teachers come from. This sort of argument that um, the, the, the coal industry, coal mining, coal exports contribute this money that somehow goes into government coffers that pays for essential public services. So that's the historical bit of the narrative, the past vision, backbone of the country, essential, part of Australian sort of national ethos, Australian national identity. We cut to the present um, discussion and it, it links to this whole idea of well, given that coal mining, primarily, more recently, the gas industry is so economically important. Um, sure, we recognise climate change is, is an important issue and we need to do something about that, but just not yet because we're too economically important. So the, the political campaign against uh, the carbon price in 2010 to 2012, for instance, is a good example of how the industry association pushed back against that, saying, yes, climate change is important, but we can't take action which impinges on the industry and this will put coal miners out of jobs. This will impinge on local economies and communities. So let's take action, but let's make it measured and sensible. In fact, the Business Council of Australia, although recently they've come out and said they, they're true believers on climate change and, and possibly even carbon pricing, back then they were key adherents to the idea that we can't take any radical action that might impinge on the industry. And then the future um, discourse, so this past, present, future is to say, okay, well, the world is going to decarbonise, but we can still play a role here because the coal and gas industries um, are going to be key parts of this transition. So the sort of the public discourses around the, the discourse of clean coal, which we've seen um, a bit like a sort of a zombie discourse. It keeps coming back, clean coal, um, high efficiency, low emissions type uh, coal-fired power plants, uh, carbon capture and sequestration, CCS, um, these sorts of technologies are wheeled out even by a current energy minister. Um, and then the gas industry, of course, is this transition fuel uh, towards decarbonisation. It's saying our methane is, is a cleaner fuel, although when you factor in the whole supply chain, the emissions are about the same as, as burning coal anyway. So these are sort of discourses the industry has um, publicly promoted and its political allies have promoted even more more extreme forms as part of trying to win the hearts and minds of the politics around climate and energy and pushing back, this is the delay part, pushing back against the very evident sort of moves that are now starting to happen globally uh, towards decarbonisation. Chris, thank you so much for that perspective. Uh, really appreciate it. I'd actually like to change the tone of the conversation now. So we've been talking a lot about denial, delay, um, and looking at a lot of the challenges for Australia contrasted with uh, what we observe is occurring internationally. Uh, Dan, a moment ago, you did mention um, one example um, of some of the opportunities that exist in Australia with reference to uh, the battery that was uh, built in South Australia. Um, and I'm just wondering now if you can maybe uh, just outline for us any 
so you spoke, I think, something about an energy policy roadmap instead of the technology investment roadmap that um, Angus Taylor has, um, has uh, well, that, that he's um, spruiking, I suppose. Um, can you tell us more about this and what some perhaps point to some specific examples of what you see is occurring in, in various states, for example, in New South Wales as well? There are thousands of pages of rules that determine how the market works. So the market is created. You know, there's a public a public good, a national electricity grid. It was built by taxpayers and state electricity commissions and then privatised and corporatised and fragmented in various ways. So there's one set of poles and wires. It's a public good, but there's a set of market overlay that's been created by government policy. The thing that's interesting is uh, the constitutional authority over electricity lies with the states. So there's a federal energy minister who talks a lot about electricity, but really it's the state ministers, Lily D'Ambrosio in Victoria and Matt Keane in New South Wales and the ministers in South Australia and the other states and territories who really have power over what the market is and how it works and which generators are allowed to be licensed to generate and who can run a network company and who can sell electricity in their state and so on. So the thing that's been fascinating, I think, in COVID is the states have really stepped up. Uh, premiers are back in town. You know, the Prime Minister, whatever you think of the current government, did drop the ball on quarantine and drop the ball on, well, that strange app that they had early on in the days. I don't know if anyone's even got it on their phones anymore. And most importantly, on vaccines. And so the, the states are increasingly important, I think, in the national conversation. And in electricity, they're sort of already there. They're really the bosses of the NEM, if you like. And I think what's happened that's been a fantastic development in recent years is states have set you know, reasonably ambitious uh, renewable energy targets and emissions targets. They're perhaps not as good as we'd like based on the science, but they're pretty good. They have net zero by 50 targets and they have interim targets as well. And they're now essentially taking the lead and they're writing energy policy within their jurisdictions to allow clean energy to compete. And I'll just give one example, because I think if you don't work in electricity, you know, it's surprising to realise how many barriers there can be. So you know, the energy economics has been clear for a long time that clean energy is cheaper to generate and cheaper now uh, to build. So it's cheaper to not just um, have uh, uh, um, ha have clean energy competing against new coal, so like for like, but clean energy can outcompete old coal. So it's cheaper to build a new large scale wind and solar park, possibly with a battery than just have the short run marginal costs and finance costs of a coal generator. However, if you build a large wind or solar project in the NEM, you face all these risks that the incumbent coal generators don't. So for example, I won't go into the details, but you can't necessarily connect. You can find a place, you can prospect and find somewhere you can build a viable project, but the grid operators, the, the transmission companies, don't really have to in the end play ball entirely on a, on a kind of level playing field terms. Secondly, when you, when you build a project, you might be charged for system strength remediation. The system operator might decide that your project is the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back and means this part of the grid needs to be uh, sort of strengthened. And again, it's, this is a public good. The grid and its function are a public good. So there's no, there's no reason that the last marginal impact on system strength should be uh, the project that pays to mitigate all of the problems that relate to the, the past history of uh, system strength in that area of the grid. And then once you start selling electricity, you might get marked down in the market, if you like, with this loss factor calculation 
for the system operator, which is to compensate for congestion. So if someone else builds a project and that means the grid is more congested than when you built yours, you effectively receive less money for your electricity. These are huge risks. These are huge risks that are individual risks faced by clean energy projects in the NEM. They can't manage them. They're not systemic policy risks. They're specific risks relating to those projects. And earlier this year, the Clean Energy Investor Group quantified that these kinds of risks, this kind of red tape in the NEM, is pushing up the, price, the cost of equity, the cost of capital by 100 to 250 basis points. And their calculation was this would add $7 billion to the cost of building the clean energy we need to bring the NEM into Paris compliance. So it, 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 it's an incredibly important area and I think a useful one strategically because you can campaign and and research and and um, collaborate with organizations to open up the market to clean energy and it's very hard for even the most grotesque kinds of delay and denial to get in the way because essentially all you're doing is helping the clean compete and thus bring down prices for all the consumers so I hope that I hope that goes to some of the way of giving you a, a sort of a pithy example of what that dynamic is, Tanya. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Listen, Tom, um, I was actually wondering, uh, we, we have a question from uh, one of the audience um, uh, that asks, and, and this is, I suppose, you know, you, we were discussing a couple of days ago um, some of the strategies that we could inherit from our international counterparts. So the low hanging fruit, the opportunities in a policy setting um, that we might be able to apply here in Australia. And so the um, question here from the panelists, from the audience is, uh, or from Alan, is what do um, you consider to be the best strategy to get our government to seriously address the decarbonisation and climate change issues? Um, so just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, um, you know, a range of really good examples that are emerging in a number of jurisdictions, um, you know, often Europe's pointed to, but actually in some of the North Asia countries as well, I think there's quite a few things we can pick up. There's a few really basics. We've, we've still got some basics we have to do. So um, set a net zero goal for 2050, increase our 2030 emissions re reduction target, Um you know, the government is right to an extent that targets are kind of meaningless without actually policies and plans to get there, but they do have some meaning in capital markets. They actually send a signal about the intent of a country in terms of its decarbonisation pathway, which is in turn a signal about the country's willingness to reduce its carbon risk. Um, and then in terms of, um, uh, like, one of the, the challenge we've got with decarbonisation is the scope and the size of what we're going to need to do can't be paid for by government alone. So you are going to have to spark private sector activity to achieve the the, the total decarbonisation of our economy. Um, and that is going to require private capital. So you need to put in place the frameworks um, and the tools to draw that private capital to our country and into our companies and into our industries um, to either get them to transition or to build up the new industries and the new companies that we, we're going to need, right? Um, so there's a range of basic things. So I talked earlier about disclosure, climate risk disclosure, which is in effect information for the market to understand um, the climate risks and opportunities in the market. 
Um, so uh, my organisation and a number of others have been calling for those dis- the government to make those disclosures mandatory across the economy. So requiring companies and financial organisations um, and to an extent government agencies to disclose information about their climate risk um, to the market. Secondly, we need to set up a, a range of um, basically sustainable finance frameworks um, that a number of other countries have been are well ahead of us on. Um, so there's a term called taxonomy, but that's basically a way of understanding what what is sustainable or what is green finance and what isn't. Um, these these things are emerging in a range of markets. You know, Europe is doing this. Um, parts of Southeast Asia, parts of North Asia are doing this. We are getting caught behind, and they are going to make themselves more attractive to this kind of global capital. Um, and then finally, um, you know, we've seen a range of um, kind of um, in some markets, we've seen a range of kind of co-investment funds. So the Clean Energy Finance Corp is quite a good model to an extent. But, um, you know, in Korea, we, for instance, one of the examples I really like is in Korea, um, which has announced a range of sort of more ambitious climate policies. Um, and it has a bit of a different business government culture, but um, they've sort of announced what they, they're calling a green deal or a green Korean Green New Deal. Um, and as part of that, they've set up what's called the New Deal Fund and it covers green and also digital kind of infrastructure as well. Um, and when they set up that, they basically invited investors to set up matching funds. And the five largest asset managers in the country immediately set up matching funds. So we saw a two, what's effectively a $250 billion government fund set up matched five times over. And that is then going into a range of projects across Korea, such as the massive offshore wind project that they announced um, about six months ago, which would be bigger than any offshore wind project we've seen for a while. So there's those kinds of mechanisms. And then finally, I know it's very unfashionable to say this in Australia, but an economy-wide carbon price would be really fantastic. Um, I don't think you'd find too many investors who'd tell you otherwise. Um, it is uh, the number one best thing that we could do um, is to have some kind of economy-wide carbon price, preferably an explicit one, so that investors can start. So there's a transparent cost on carbon um, and therefore investors can start making kind of transparent and easier decisions around what they need to do in terms of their investment. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. So I'm going to go more into the questions that we have here. So there's a question here from um, Sinan um, with respect to the argument that Australia's emissions don't matter because we're just too small. Um, now, Chris, uh, the other day we were discussing about um, the types of frameworks the government was looking at back in the 1980s. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if and, and it's a sort of a different form of leadership. And I'm just wondering if you can maybe talk to that briefly, <laughs> as well as, um, you know, this idea that our emissions simply don't matter. Yeah, sure. OK, a couple of points. Um, well, Australia is the largest exporter of coal and gas in the world. Um, so that's significant. And if we factor in um, those the emissions that eventually result from our exports, um, Australia is a significant emitter globally. Um, we're one of the leading sort of fossil fuel um, nations in the world. Um, there's been research done 
um, by some organisations looking at our sort of combined emissions. If we get to per capita emissions, we're amongst the highest in the OECD. So, um, you know, a whole range of ways, and again, coming back to the politics of climate change globally, Australia is really important. Uh, and way back in the day, as you alluded to, Tanya, Australia was a leader in this space. We were actually sort of um, going right back there, strong advocates for global action on climate change. We've lost our way really from the Howard years onwards. And Guy Pearce's book, um, High and Dry, is a really good insider account of how that happened politically, how the greenhouse mafia, the big resource companies, um, the big mining companies captured um, the government debate there on the conservative side and also on the Labor side, to be honest. Um, and we've had a lost decade over the last 10 years, really since the, the carbon price debate. Uh, we've lost the sort of the policy impetus to really take some action, meaningful action on climate change. And very quickly, I just compare it with what we used to do in the 80s. You know, back in the, the Hawke days under the Accord, when we wanted to transform our economy, uh, we implemented, you know, government-led industry policy, government, business and unions acting in a tripart manner, a collective sort of vision of where we wanted to go. And we just don't have that anymore. We don't have the government leadership to sort of lead this transition, this decarbonisation that Tom and Dan are talking about. So I'll leave it there. Yeah, great. Thanks, Chris. And that sort of leads us on to another question. So Margaret asked, um, how can I, as a member of the public who is worried about climate change, um, I suppose, you know, get the attention of, of, of your MP or of um, the Prime Minister. There was another question that was sent to us earlier from um, Greg Olson. How can I present the urgent need to get off fossil fuels to my federal MP, um, Angus Taylor? Uh, Tom, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this. How can we as voters, um, you know, get the attention of our MPs? Um, well, you're putting my... I'm going to have to put my old environmental NGO hat on here, I think, probably, than my, my current role. Um, so what I always used to say, um, I, for those who don't know, I used to work for the Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, I mean, get active. Get active in your community. But I think also um, get active in your workplace as well. Um, I actually think, you know, there are a lot of people who work in um, important institutions and have... Uh, influence where um, you know they don't have to be radical but just actually sort of incorporate and think about climate change in the kind of functions that they've got in the, these types of organizations that would have quite a big impact the one thing I would say um, is uh, whatever we've been doing um, has been working so um, and I think um, you know, in a lot of the media debate, uh, organisations like myself and sort of big business gets a lot of credit for some of the shifts that are occurring now. But I think, you know, a lot of credit needs to be given to the sort of endless years of work that civil society has put in um, uh, on this issue. Um, I don't think that the, the recognition for civil society on climate change and the scientific community um, is sort of enough, appropriately given enough um, in the... Um, in the national debate but i would also say there is a kind of role for everyone and so we've really seen like you know i have a lot of time for people who work in some of the places that i suspect many of our viewers would be pretty uncomfortable about that who are trying to drive change from in from the inside who are doing work with the boards and the c-suite or the just executives of those companies um, so that they've got a better understanding as well there is a sort of collective responsibility and a collective effort 
in the places we can have influence to try have them. Great. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, and it's interesting there, the, the um, parallels there between what business is doing and, and civil society groups have been doing for a long time. Um, I, I just want to just change slightly the tack. Um, so in talking about what business can do, there's, there's a comment here from Sinan again. Um, you don't need to believe in climate change to believe in capitalism. So that's a quote from Matt Keane. Um, we also had a question from Luke Hankinson. Um, what needs to be done to bring green blue collar work to regions? So Tom, I know you've been working on this and we've just heard from you. So I'm just gonna go to you for a moment, but if it could just be very quick so we get a chance to include Dan and Chris as well, that'd be great. Yeah, so um, IGCC um, produced a report on just transition and how investors um, have a role to play in that. I think if I'm gonna say it really simply, um, we know the areas of intense kind of exposure in Australia at the community level. We have quite concentrated um, fossil fuel kind of uh, job worker areas. Um, so a range of work across, uh, basically it's only going to occur if the community is brought into this discussion um, and the governments work with companies, investors together and we start planning for it now because it's happening now and it's going to be uh, uh, forced upon us by our international trading partners at a probably a rate that um, that I think some people will feel uncomfortable about. So we've got to plan for it now. We've got to start bringing people together now. Um, uh, I know that sounds like generalities, but that's about as quickly as I could do it. No, that's great. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, Chris, I'd like to go to you now. Uh, there's a question from um, Valentin. Heim Hoover, uh, how can we break the self-sustaining cycle of corporations profiting from fossil fuel extraction, export controlling, the political decision-making process and so on? And there's, a, there's also a comment uh, from or question from Michael Davis along similar lines um, with reference to um, uh, the delaying tactics around carbon capture and storage and, and so on. So do you have any sense from, you know, from your sort of historical perspective um how we can how we can break this cycle yeah sure look it's it's a really difficult task because you're, you're talking about as with climate change more generally on a global scale you're trying to reinvent a political economy that's been established over 200 years uh, and there's a whole institutional political sort of nexus around it a state sort of industry nexus that supports that so it's kind of easy to fight the other side because all you've got to say is sort of delay and technology doesn't work and you've got this convincing historical narrative about how wonderful your product is and how it's delivered the standard of living we have today and and to argue against that you have to you have to create a convincing narrative and a convincing story of what the future looks like and why it's desirable and that's i think where we suffer there isn't that convincing narrative being created about what the green future looks like and how communities will benefit from that in terms of jobs and well-being and a sustainable environment so that's that's the tough part and then the politics i guess is as i go back to the previous response i gave we've sort of lost lost our way politically in the sense that we used to have uh, a focus on um, planning, government planning and government uh, creating that vision for what that future would look like. Uh, and both sides of politics, you know, obviously on the conservative side, they're, they're fighting for the, the maintenance of business as usual. But also on the Labor side, I, I don't see the convincing narrative about that sort of that green transition. There, there's sort of 
There's the occasional statement, you know, climate change is important, we should take some action. But when it comes down to it, it's support for coal and gas again. So um, we need that sort of uh, creation of a narrative. And obviously there's problems around the politics, you know, the political party donations that come from the big end of town. How do you unpick that? So it's very complex. It's tough, but that's what we've got to do. Great. Thanks, Chris. Uh, well, we're nearing the end of our time here. Um, and I've just got a, two uh, questions, Dan, that I might put to you. They're, they're sort of opposing those. So, so Glenn asks exactly how much taxpayer cash does the government give to fossil fuel companies each year? And then Patrick um, is interested in the Sun Cable project, uh, which is privately financed, and wonders if this sort of lighthouse project is useful or does it prevent more systemic change? Right, great. Look, they're good questions. So the, the answer to the first is uh, roughly $10 billion a year. There's a great report by my colleagues at the Australia Institute. If you just go to our website and um, put fossil fuel subsidies in the search engine, you'll, you can download it. And the Australia Institute, I think, did probably one of the first big studies of fossil fuel subsidies in about 2002. So we have a long history. Uh, the second question about Sun Cable, um, uh, no, I, I think it's a great project. I think there's there's really two things we need to do. One is get our own house in order as a nation and stop relying on fossil fuels uh, for our domestic economy. But then we should look to export good, clean, green energy or things. And I think, you know, it's a remarkable project to think you can have the high transmission cable right up to Singapore, helping power their uh, electricity needs and should be explored absolutely. And if the economics stack up, which they seem to, then I think it's a fantastic innovation. But there'll be many others ranging from uh, mining the, 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 the minerals needed for batteries and wind turbines and so on, and refining them onshore and then exporting either refined products or even final products in the form of batteries and high tech, but also exporting uh, green energy in the form of whether it is hydrogen, which I suspect is not going to live up to all the hype, but it could, or ammonia, or in other kinds of manufacturers that have high embodied energy, such as aluminium in particular, congealed electricity, I think Paul Keating called it. So so no, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about all those big what was the term, lighthouse projects, I think they're needed. And, you know, I think it's easy to be cynical about Australia, but we're not, you know, we're a, we're, we're a complex country, <laughs> um, not always run by the, the best people, um, but we, we are lucky. We have a lot of clean energy, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of interest, not hype, in innovation uh, in clean tech now. And just lastly, I would say, you know, I guess being turning 50 in lockdown, I get to be the old one of the old people and talk about the young people and I have to say a lot of the smartest young people I see as interns or people who contact me wanting some mentoring or you know advice on careers are going into clean tech and clean energy and I find it remarkable these people who are incredible graduates who really could have the pick of any job from going to DFAT and becoming a spook or a diplomat you know or jumping into a big role at MacBank and becoming a millionaire and they're going into energy and energy innovation, energy tech, and also the thing I love and I think is important, which is this sort of energy regulatory nerd out that is um, energy e energy uh, market reform. And I think that's a great thing for the future, a great sign of where Australia could be. 
Great. Thanks so much, Dan. Finishing on that amazingly positive note. And um, so I, w- I think we do need to wrap up now. We're on the hour. But if I can maybe just get one sentence from each of you as to how you might promote urgency. So movement away from delay to urgency. So maybe, Tom, could you go first? Um, put it in the language with the people that you're speaking to. Yeah, great. Chris? A tough one. Um, we live in an age of consequences, I guess. That's You know, it's very late. It's much later than we think. So there is no time to delay. Fantastic. Thank you. Show where action can be taken today. Great. Thanks so much, everyone. Really appreciate your thoughts today. And thank you very much to the audience. Also, you had fantastic questions. And unfortunately, we couldn't get to all of them. Uh, But hopefully, we'll hear from you next time as well. Thank you. Before we finish, I'd just like to say thank you to all the speakers and for everyone in the audience for the amazing, astute comments and questions that you've provided. And of course, stay up to date with other upcoming events and news coming out of the Sydney Environment Institute. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter or you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So thank you very much to everybody and have a good night.